Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations. Today I spoke to Ben Connell. I've known Ben since I was like 12. He is a special human being from an incredible family. We talked about his experience as a county councilman, a national champion wrestler, an attorney, a hobbyist farmer, and a husband and father. When I thought about doing a podcast, Ben was one of the first guests that came to mind. He's a good role model and a good dude. Now, if you'd like to hear more conversations like this one where I ask different dads about their career, their life story, and their parenting style, you're welcome to subscribe to the show. And we've got a very special promo right now where you can actually subscribe for free. You can find almost 50 episodes that have already aired, and the next episodes will include some more pretty awesome people. All right, time to hear from Ben. Enjoy. Thanks for coming on the show. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing great, man. Super excited to talk with you today. You're an attorney. You're a county councilman, a national champion wrestler. Uh, you think you played two sports in college. You got five siblings that you're an older brother to. You're a husband, father, and you're a Connell, which is one of the coolest of all of those accolades. So I'm real excited to talk with you, man. Thanks, man. Well, you give me too much credit. I only wrestled in college. I did football and uh, wrestling in high school. Oh, I thought you played football too. No, no, I, uh, I, I flirted with it at both the universities that I was at, but ultimately, um, rigorous academics and a tough wrestling schedule. And then two years of missionary work in there too. Uh, yeah. just made the schedule too much. All good. Um, Let's start with your role as a county councilman. I've heard several times uh, that people say, like in many cases, a local election can have a larger impact on some on the lives of constituents than a you know a, a state or national election. So, uh, could you just tell me a little about your experience uh, as a city councilman and and like running for city council? Sure. Actually, I serve on Kershaw County Kers- Council. Sorry, and, county, uh, I mean. just a little bit larger municipality. Um. I would have not really understood that statement that you can have a larger impact locally, or at least you feel like you can. Uh, but I found it to be true over my first four years in service here on Kershaw County Council. And the, the reason is it's so much more responsive. You know, we in, in the community, like I work, you know, just a few minutes away really from the government center. And uh, a lot of the other council members live not too far away. So you're seeing folks that you represent in the community all the time. If they have an issue, they will come up to you and tap you on the shoulder or you know, grab lunch. Or I, I put my cell phone out there, so I get calls from time to time on what people have questions about. And uh, so you get to hear, I mean, it's really responsive. You get to hear what the issues are or what their ideas are for about uh, projects they want to get done. But also you can change the law or the code pretty quickly. I mean, we meet every two weeks and I imagine it's kind of the same for other small local government. And every two weeks we can have a motion and a majority can carry some type of change in the code or the local ordinance and law on what will or won't be done. So in that sense, it's much faster than something you'd see at the state or local level. Um, And, you know, you kind of field everything from potholes up to multi-million dollar projects um, because those are the issues that people are dealing with locally. 
That is cool. How did you decide you wanted to run? Was there like certain issues that pulled you into running for office or uh, in general, just a, a broad interest in helping out? Well, you know, Kershaw County. So uh, graduated in high school in 2000. And then between getting educated, going to different colleges, including the University of Oklahoma, and then uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and then working in various places, you know, interning up at New York, <coughs> excuse me, and then working uh, in Charleston for a while, and um, all of that. I'd been away from Kershaw County for about 14 years. After we had our second child, we decided to move back closer to home. And when I came home, meaning County, I immediately had a sense of comfort and was like, wow, you know, just about everything's the same after 14 years, all the things, you know, all the same people are around and uh, the businesses are in the same place and not too much new has been developed, uh, at least, you know, from my initial sense driving through the town initially. And then I thought, man, that's not great <laughs> for, for my kids. Um, that means that they're going to, the community is going to experience brain drain effectively. And that's kind of what I saw with my high school class in 2000 also all the kids that were graduating at the top of the class in order to have a job that would match with your skill set after you got educated in college, you'd have to go work somewhere else. You couldn't come back home really and work. And uh, I just wanted something different for my kids. So I, I figured that county council is one of the best ways to try to impact and change policy locally so that my kids and all their peers would have that opportunity to come back and work and live and play and worship in Kershaw County, which I obviously feel like is a great place to raise children and families. Uh, it's just just been awesome for me as an upbringing. Um, and I see that it's being good for my kids now. For sure. Which So helping to grow the county, you know, financially and in other ways, uh, how can you go about doing that? Um, obviously, that's a, a great initiative that you're excited to be working on. Like what, what can be done as a county council to facilitate that type of growth? Well, the question kind of leans on economic development, which we have some role in, we can help with. Um, you can help with infrastructure. So if a business, um, and remind me, who is it that you work for right now? I work for Cisco Systems. Okay. So let's just take Cisco as an example, uh, as a hypothetical. But seriously, if they want to come to Kershaw County, let's make that happen. <laughs> if they want to open up some, I, I, maybe they're an RTP. I mean, I lived in Chapel Hill for about seven years. I forget if they're up in RTP or, or something. Oh, yeah. Also, There's like 5,000 of us in, in the triangle area. Uh, RTP. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I remember hearing about Cisco all the time. There are a few, many grad students when I was in law school at Chapel Hill that uh, were doing projects for associated with Cisco. But hypothetically, if Cisco wanted to come down and have an office uh, or some location and expand in Kershaw County, there is a, a big difference between doing that cold turkey and just coming in and saying, okay, now let's figure out the permits, let's figure out uh, where the sewer pipes or waters or utilities or gas or rail can go versus having a site uh, ready for business and industry to come in. And that's what we try to do with some of our product, I would say, is have those locations ready, have uh, building pads prepared, some engineering work done on the sites so that 
what would be a 18 month process for a, a build and completion date for industry turns into a six month process. So that year of revenue they gain because the, the local municipality has, has done a little bit of legwork in prepping sites. So that's just one example. Um, a ready site is what they're interested in. Another example would be a trained and ready workforce. And that's perhaps most crucial. Um, you know, you, you have the site, but if you don't have bodies that can fill it and are competent to do whatever the job is, you're not gonna be able to produce your widgets or provide your service. So another thing that we've done locally is move or try to work with the school district to move the vocational uh, technical training called ATEC. You might remember that name. Um, ATEC is now the Woolard Technology Center. Gil Woolard started ATEC so many years ago. We've moved it over next to Central Carolina Technical College in Kershaw County, which is the local uh, kind of two-year uh, community college. And then Economic Development Office for the county is on the same campus. So I think it's unique in the whole state of South Carolina that we've got that setup of high school vocational training, community college, and our economic development office all on the same campus. So, you know, high school kids are getting, taking over to uh, their, generally their um, junior and senior year, and they can get trained in whatever it is they want to get a certificate in. It could be cosmetology, uh, nursing, something related to healthcare, phlebotomy, uh, welding, uh, advanced diesel tech services. They can get two years of that and be walking across the graduation stage with a diploma in hand, but also a certificate that has them certified in whatever that area is. And then they could also transition into additional training in mechatronics or something else um, at the community college. And so that's really attractive to local businesses. We actually have incubator bays at uh, some of these facilities I was mentioning where say it was Cisco and that they have a, a unique uh, either machine or program or something that they need worked on. Imagine having high school kids able to get trained on that for two years, basically on the school district's dime as part of their curriculum, they're learning, they're growing, and you're getting people up to speed uh, in an in a environment where it's really user and learner friendly. Um, so that's another one of the things, just as an example that we've done to try to make it attractive for industry. And I think we're starting to see dividends now, even in spite of the pandemic, we've got a lot of interest in local businesses, or excuse me, local sites uh, with out of town businesses coming to Kershaw to, to set up because of some of these, I'll call them feathers in our cap. That's awesome, man. I love to hear about that, especially the the ATAC training, because I remember my brother took some classes at ATAC and those were the, by far his favorite classes. And the idea that, you know, 17, 18 years old, you can have a certification to make really good money and you could, you know, you could go into a career, you keep your whole life, or that helps you as a, a stepping stone that you keep moving, you keep moving on up, but showing kids like practical, val uh, valuable experience right away. Yeah, I love people, that. people knock the trades. I mean, you know, are you objectively, is someone better off paying for four years of undergraduate school and then having a, a marginal uh, income and debt to pay off? Or are they better off uh, being a journeyman electrician, plumber, or HVAC uh, worker and getting their license pretty quick after that? 
yeah. uh, and then controlling their own business, setting their own schedule and providing a service and trade that will always be in demand and making a great income. You know, that, that's a call for each individual and parents as they coach their kids. But I think um, skilled workers and tradesmen, they've been knocked for too long. I mean, there is a place for, for people and a place for community colleges and society where you're making more money than out there, especially undergrad, because of the demand for some of these services. Sure. So I won't say in a perfect world, but let's let's go with the like optimistic, realistic goal for in your mind what Kershaw County looks like in ten years. Mm-hmm. Well, ideally, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. So, so what is so inviting and warm about Kershaw County for me is the value base. So it's in the Bible Belt. People still generally hold on to treat your neighbor the right way. The golden rule, uh, folks are courteous and kind. All things that make it great for for raising a family here. But uh, that also means that, well, I don't, it just seems related. I don't know that that's the meaning, but it seems related that um, there is not as much technology locally. There's not as uh, many job opportunities locally. And that's what I would want to see change is have some development and some industry come in. And I'm not talking about game necessarily, but, you know, a respectable amount of growth that doesn't lead to an overwhelming population. So you don't have crazy traffic issues, but high paying and, um, and really marketable jobs where the people can get trained locally and also can work locally. That that's what I'd like to see. And it also improvements in quality of life. You know, some of the projects we're working on more recently, Sean, would be uh, the county purchased a lot along the Watery River, which you remember, uh, you'll probably remember driving over the river bridge heading to uh, Camden or back to Lugoff. Just a yeah. beautiful river, great for fishing. You can get out there and kayak. Well, there's about yeah. 35 acres that were just purchased and it's turned into a public park now. So that's a great quality of life improvement in my view. I saw that when we went back for, uh, for yeah, Christmas yeah, okay. to visit the so family. I was like, that. there's a walking track out there. You've got a, uh, a large and, and pylon for kayaks and everything and fishing as well. Uh, and then also we're trying to get a YMCA in Kershaw County. The land has been donated to the YMCA of Columbia and uh, we're working on a capital fundraising campaign to bring the Y here. So those kind of quality of life improvements it kind of all works together between the workforce quality of life and um, and industrial sites and, and ready sites for folks to build on. That's kind of the, the formula for us, as I see it, to have the growth that we want, improve the tax base and improve quality of life locally. That'd be great, man. It, it is. Uh, it's such a good place with just really kind people. I mean, people who know how to cook some good food and freaking take care of their neighbors, you know, like just really just good, uh, good community. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Is there anything you wish the average person knew about local government or, uh, running for office? Yes. You know, I, um, I used to have much more of a libertarian bent and, 
feel a lot more adverse to government in general. But after serving locally, I can see how in, in many ways it can be effective locally. Now, that's not to say you don't have like your local corruption stories with uh, here, there and some other location, local town or, or a school district or a water or sewer district. But I found that most folks are pretty earnest in serving, um, that they do really care, that they're accessible. And I think that's the key thing is, you know, I know some of our local state reps and they do a good job and I'll see some of them fairly frequently, but it's because of the, the current office that I, that I got elected to. I also know some of our federal representatives and also see them on occasion, but it's much less frequently because they're often up in DC. So it's, it's more of a, it feels like a more of a detached form of government at the federal and state level. And locally, it's just so much more involved, you know, like I, anybody can call my cell number and probably I could say the same for most of the council members that I serve with on Kershaw County Council. And you can call and within, you know, five or 10 minutes, you'll be put in touch with the person that can handle your issue uh, at the county level with the appropriate department. And again, like I said, we can, we can change our budget or we can change our uh, codes and ordinances with a couple of votes. Sometimes it requires three readings and a public hearing, but that's much faster than the months and months and sometimes years you hear about certain budgets or certain laws attempting to be passed at the state or especially uh, at the federal government level. Awesome. Uh, thanks for telling me all about that. I really don't know much at all about uh, local government, so it's uh, it's interesting to hear about that. Yeah, well, I mean, like you, I didn't know much until I said, you know what, I need to do something. How, how do I do it? And I just went to trying to figure out how to do something and figure out what something meant, uh, what can be done. But I would encourage folks to, to really answer your question earlier. I would encourage folks to educate themselves on it and then go and run. If you have an issue or something that you care about, participate. I mean, that is, you know, people call it democracy, but overall we are a representative Republic in the United States of America. So most of the systems uh, and, and government are built off of that. And, you know, it only works if you participate and understand what the representation means. And for someone out there who's thinking about running, what are they signing up for? What's, what's a local election? Like. It depends. <laughs> some of them get really nasty. Thankfully I've never been involved in one like that, but uh, some of them get pretty nasty. You know, local politics has kind of a bad reputation and they say all politics is local. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, it was just running on issues, whatever those were at the time that uh, needed to be focused on and, and focus on data points. Um, I forget if it was George Washington, but kind of the approach to government was, you know, I would, I would rather be doing something else like hanging out with my family or I'd be back, rather be back at the farm working. And uh, on some levels, I, I, on some level, I kind of think of it that way. I, you know, I would rather be focusing on my business or spending time with my family, but out of a sense of duty and kind of understanding a role in uh, what local government is, uh, I serve and want to serve and we'll try to do so competently and faithfully. Um, but what you don't want to have is like a legislative thumb twiddler where people are trying to create uh, laws or codes or ordinances just to justify their existence. You want to get in there and call balls and strikes 
and then go home uh, to your family and be part of the community. Yeah. That's, I mean, I wish all, all politicians were motivated like that. Um, it's out of a sense of duty to give back, you know, cause yeah, you've got little kids at home you've got your own business, you know, you're uh, an entrepreneur, uh, more, more you put into that business, more money you can make. And I have to imagine there's not a whole lot of backdoor deals where you're getting rich as a county councilman, you know? So it's like, you're, you're, well, you're, you're, there might be somewhere I haven't experienced it. You know, <laughs> they, they have a relatively small stipend that you, uh, that you get on county council and, and that kind of thing, but it's not about, the income really, uh, because as an attorney, if I spent my, all the time that I spent on county council, if I spent it elsewhere, you know, it'd be much more lucrative, but that's not what it's about. It's about trying to improve it for, you know, my kids. I have, I kind of think of, uh, them and their peers because, you know, all of their friends, um, we're friends with their parents. <laughs> so we all hang out together. And so I keep thinking, you know, uh, my oldest child is going to be 18 at this point, And then the next one is going to be 18 at this point, And then the next one is going to be 18 at this point. And when they're graduating high school, what opportunities are they going to have? You know, what's the, the local world going to look like for them? And uh, it's truly a global economy. You know, whenever I talk about economic development, it's not just regional U.S. companies that are thinking about locating here. It's a company in Sweden that uh, works in textiles or a company from somewhere in Asia that is doing uh, you know, solar panels or whatever it might be. Um, so I feel like we have to make the local market as attractive as possible to make, to kind of reca recapture the brain drain that we've experienced over the years. You have the, the best and brightest kids that can't come back and work. You raise them with a great moral compass and then they can't come back and contribute to the community that raised them. And in some ways that's kind of sad, but it's something you can overcome through uh, improving it. Cool. Good for you, man. Um, all right, let's, let's uh, turn to another chapter and tell us a little about your, you know, your upbringing, what type of kid were you, what were some of your interests growing up? <laughs> well, uh, I am the oldest child and I always joke with my mom and dad that that means I was the test child. They had no idea what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so anyway, um, hopefully we gave each other a lot of uh, grace as I was raised and figuring out how to be their first child and they were figuring out how to be first time parents. Um, so my dad, uh, Joe, is a double Gamecock. He went to University of South Carolina undergrad law school and I grew up at Carolina Gardens, which is the student family housing right there while he was going through school. And my mom, Carrie, uh, just a sweetheart angel who you know, worked uh, paper routes and different things like that with me and my sister, Naomi, who's two years younger than I am in tow while dad was going through school. She is um, an angel, man. She's amazing. You got, you got <laughs> yeah. really good parents and your mom's awesome. Mom is awesome. Thank you for that. But, um, you know, we were raised, I, I don't know what I'll call it, strict but uh, there's there was discipline in the house and that was based on respect mutual respect for parents and uh and honoring and following god as best as you could and just doing the right thing you know kind of kind of simple uh kind of simple lessons but um i think it it kind of stems from my grandparents at least on that side of the family it stems from my grandparents 
um, JC and Izzy, and then also my mom's parents, uh, Bill and Millie Ellenberg, but JC and Izzy Connell, it was a military family and uh, granddad was involved in intelligence and actually served part of his time uh, doing communications and intelligence, I think in the Reagan administration, um, but just great people. And grandma Izzy was a, a school teacher locally in Kershaw County. And she had a reputation for not just, you know, to not tolerating fights, but she would jump in and break them up <laughs> in part because she was used to snatching up her boys at home. And so <laughs> I'm the oldest of six, there's five boys and one girl. Um, and, you know, there were, uh, was it four boys and two girls, I, I think for between my uncles and aunts. And so of course they got in some scuffles from time to time. And grandma Izzy had the reputation of the, the fastest shoe thrower in the east i mean it'd be she'd walk into a room and if somebody smarted off or did you know did something out of sorts it was just it was a i wish you could see my foot but it was a one motion reach down grab it and then throw <laughs> and uh she was flying across the room uh, commanding respect for whatever the next words were that came out of your mouth <laughs> smooth mechanics like they were the quarterbacks yeah, she, she was throw practice at it. but you know that that led to hopefully some some shocking moments or at least it kind of stepped the my uncles and dad uh back into line wherever they needed to be dude that's one thing i wanted to talk to you about because like your family is amazing like i, I wish i could adequately explain your extended family to people that don't know you guys like I, I i don't know your grandparents well you know see them around at church and i know your parents i know your aunts and uncles your siblings your your cousins and feel like all of you are at least like 90th percentile for success and achievements and just like doing amazing things, but also like 99th percentile in humility and love and service. Like, so I, I want to hear all about that. Uh, you've got entrepreneurs, a doctor, a lawyer, a chiropractor, nuclear physicist, and and several you know most importantly several stay-at-home moms of, of big families uh but just so humble and kind and talented like all so that that's kind of the ideal mix that i would like to have with um with my family but what what did they do to foster that type of a culture environment wow well that is heavy mantle and answer uh, uh mantle to try and answer is a question right now but let me let me think about that for a second you know i'd have to imagine it was bar setting um i think the ball bar was always set very high and nothing else was tolerated uh, to the extent any of us me or otherwise have been successful it's because we didn't know any different <laughs> expectations it's funny to be you know uh raised in a household where where you know, uh, for my grandparents, I would say, you know, you're relatively poor uh, by U.S. standards, but you're raised to accept nothing other than excellence in all your attempts and efforts. Um, that's a unique line to dance, I guess. But that's been my sense is that um, Grandma Izzy and Granddad JC did not accept anything other than very best effort. They were quick to call uh, BS, as it were, on on you know just a weak attempt and 
the accountability I think was very important. And that's bled through to each one of their kids and thus hopefully the extended family. Maybe that's the the lineage that you see for that side that you're familiar with. Um, I've got some similar uh, experiences on the other side of the family too with, with my, my uh, grandma, Millie or Mildred, Nana, as we called her, and then Papa, uh, Bill Ellenberg, just outstanding people and, and employed some of the same things and the humility and kindness, especially that, that trickled down to my mom that I think helped develop the attributes in her that so many people, including yourself, recognize. Um, comes down to hard work and grit, I guess. People, they just wouldn't let you quit either, you know? Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of loving moments where if you're truly struggling with something, I've heard stories from my aunts and uncles about that. And then I've seen it also with my own siblings. If you're truly struggling with something, they'll step up and help you. But real learning, I think, comes in struggle and challenge and, and figuring it out. And that's one of the things I try to teach my kids regularly, and, you know, before you come to me asking for help on whatever this issue is, I need to know that you failed at least like three or four times, maybe more, uh, to show that you really, really want the help first. And, and two, that you've, you know, learned something along the way. That's a good, that's a good principle. Cause it shows like, it helps them. I mean, I think that selfishly, I think like, great, it's a great way to protect your time as a parent. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. More importantly than that is it teaches the kid to think for themselves and, and find solutions and be uh, like own their own their situation. Yeah. And, and at the 30,000 foot level, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it's really all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, a lot of the principles that I just shared boil down to self-reliance, which is is something that's really encouraged within the gospel, I believe. But I think that's what it comes down to is self-reliance within the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to follow his example of love and, and kindness and charity. And uh, I, I witnessed that in my grandparents, in my parents, in uh, my aunts and uncles. And I personally saw it being taught to myself and my siblings, all of which just stems from God and to him be the glory. Amen. So if I were to sum up, tell me if I got this right. It's coach, coaching the kids hard with, uh, and setting, setting high expectations, coaching them hard and being, but being loving throughout the process. Cause it's not like you're just crazy high achievers. It's like, I, I, I can't describe, it, but just everyone's like very humble and just loving. And like, if you're talking to a Connell, they're looking at you like you're the most important person in the world. You know, it's like refreshing, just, just good people, man. So I'm trying to think like, what do I need to do to be a little more like Connell? So high <laughs> expectations, coach them hard and, and love them all along the way. Is that yeah, I mean, well, I think with kids, uh, loving them means giving them the freedom to to go out and experiment a little bit on the things you've taught them about. And then, you know, if they're messing up, be ready to snatch the reins in and coach them up again. Um, but if they're making some progress, you know, let let the reins go and let them be creative and uh, and grow as children. But, you know, they've got to have responsibility just as an example. Um, again, this is just to the practical. So we've tried to set up a small farm out here and 
in the vein of self-reliance. And I've been married for uh, 16 years, be coming up on 17 years this year to my wife, Kristen, who is just amazing. Um, she, growing up, used to farm probably a quarter acre to a half acre plot with her dad, Gerald, over in Chapin, South Carolina. Gerald was an outstanding man. Sadly, he passed away from cancer. Um, but I think it's kind of a, a way to get back in touch with her roots and the important lessons she learned in her upbringing. Um, she got a, a real interest and itch in gardening and farming and went to the Clemson uh, Master Gardener program and completed that. And then we found some land and decided we were going to set up a small farm. So here, the kids don't get to eat eggs unless they go get some from the chicken coop and cook them themselves. Most typically, I mean, that, that's probably what happens 70% of the time, unless we're already cooking something. But they've got their chores and their responsibilities that they, they have to put in the effort to see fruits of their labors so that they can associate hard work with results. And, you know, collecting the eggs and cooking them is just one small example, but we try to set up scenarios like that where the kids um, are learning and growing through their own work as frequently as possible. That's good. By the way, side question, because I would like to get some chickens at some point. Do you, you just got, you grab the eggs. Do the eggs need to be like rinsed off really good? Or can you just basically crack it cleanly and, and drop it in the pan? Uh, well, if, if you've got a pretty good straw bed in your coop, you should be okay. Should be um, okay. Actually, there's right. a, I think there's an antimicrobial film or something that, that is developed on the egg as it comes out of the chicken. Uh, the cloaca, and I think you're okay. I typically rinse them off, um, but you know maybe that's not best practice. I don't know. But I, I just feel better rinsing them off before I crack yeah. them. Yeah, feels like it'd be hard not to rinse them, but it is uh, wouldn't surprise me. Nature is pretty amazing if it's uh, got a built-in antiseptic. Yeah, but the, you know, just total side note: the the difference in the color of the yolk of a store-bought chicken egg. And one that you raise out in your own field is just amazing. Like the, the richness and change in color. And, um, you know, I hate being the guy to say studies have shown, but I've read them. And <laughs> the research looks like the nutrient level is, is so much higher. Do you have animals that uh, prey on your chickens or how does that work? You keep oh, yeah. coop, yeah, there's, cooped up there's all the time? How does it work? They're, they're hawks. And then we had an issue with coyotes until we got a, uh, got a donkey, got a male jack out in the field and he keeps the coyotes at bay. But we used to have hawks that would be taking them, you know, maybe two a month. Um, but we've got, uh, at the farm anyway, we've tried to automate everything as much as possible. So all the coops have solar powered automators that open or close based on the sunrise or sunset. Dang. All of their watering is adjusted, moderated by, uh, by uh, float valves and float systems. So. Um, and then we set up irrigation out here that I can control from my phone. Uh, I can pick it up and, and adjust irrigation in different locations, whether it be the, the blueberry bushes or the scuppernong and muscanon vines um, or, or the grass generally uh, through a push of a couple buttons. And that same water line is going out to uh, hydrate the animals. So. We try to automate it as much as possible so you can reduce the time that you physically have to be doing farm stuff, yeah. but still um, receive the benefits. 
for someone who's interested in kind of light touch technology enabled farming, are there any resources or websites you recommend someone to check out? I would say you can extend off of like your rainbird system. If that's what you have, it's just what we're using for general irrigation and it's not too hard to incorporate it into farming. Um, on, I've got uh, seven beehives out here. We lost one over the winter. I'm not sure what happened there. This is my first full, I'll call it a year and a half of keeping bees. And we've had um, three harvests so far, each time getting over probably two and a half, three gallons of honey, uh, somewhere around there. And we haven't drawn as much as we could have because you know, we're trying to let the bees just be really strong and have a strong base each time they head into winter, we'll probably start to harvest a little bit more. But I bring up bees because there's new technology there as well. It's called the flow hive. Traditional beekeepers will say, you know, we're skeptical, may not work that well. Uh, part of the issue is you have to, you have to bust open the hive each time you collect honey, which disrupts the bees pretty significantly. You, they have this stuff called uh, propolis, which is like uh, glue almost or cement that they make to seal in all the cracks and the gaps around each of the boxes for a beehive. You've seen them before where they're stacked. So you got to break that up and that wastes some of their effort and energy and then they have to reseal it and you're scraping wax off and agitating them and everything. Um, the flow hive might be a cool website. I, I forget what the exact website is, but you could search that online and it, it has a mechanism where you can just twist a valve at the back and it takes the honeycomb and it misaligns it by half. So the honey then flows down through and out the back out so you don't have to break the hive apart. Um, I have some bees in a flow hive and this is their first year building up. So I haven't, haven't um, they haven't got into the upper frame yet to start putting honey in there, but I'm hoping after this spring and the nectar flow, I'll get to actually use it and, and see the benefits of that and reduce the time it takes to actually collect and process honey and spin it out with a centrifuge and all that and actually just go to the back of the flow hive and turn this little valve and collect it in my jar and put the lid on and walk away, you know, so that'll probably save me 90% of the time it would require to collect honey and process it otherwise. That is so cool. It's like just one more reminder that people are awesome coming up with technology to work well, you know, responsibly, sustainably interact with animals in a way that makes life easier for us and works well in nature. That's cool. Um, I would love to hear, so I know you wrestled, you're, you come from an incredible family of wrestlers. You were like national champion wrestler. I think all of your brothers that wrestled were state champs at least once, if not multiple times. Um, how how does a family of multiple state champion wrestlers come? Obviously, you guys are like just going at it, probably having a good time. You not so much because you're way big compared to you're much older. Uh, they were likely uh, you know going back and forth with each other quite a bit. Um, but tell me about the culture, the expectations, the commitments, the setbacks. Like I'd love to hear a little bit about the the wrestling journey for for both you and the the family. Okay, well, um, I always joked with my dad that I was wrestling in the womb on some level. 
<clears throat> I said I was so active as a, as a little baby in utero. But anyway, you know, we were just, I was a rough and tumble kid. And um, dad wrestled and played football in high school and was quite good at both. And I would go to practices with him when I was maybe six or seven. He would just work out with the local high school team and some old friends. And from there, I just picked it up, I guess, really started to like it and uh, got a little bit older, started competing in middle school and realized that I might be pretty good at this. I think my parents and, and others saw much more of the potential than I did, but I stuck with it and then um, started winning quite a bit in seventh grade, eighth grade. And then that just carried on through in eighth grade. I started practicing with the high school team and being some of the high school guys. And then thankfully, uh, was able to win four state championships individually. And like you said, you know, sometimes you get lucky and hard work and preparation meet up with opportunity. And I was able to win the national championship well at the high, as well at the high school level. And, uh, the, was your question about the lifestyle, you know, I just flow on whatever comes to mind. What was unique for me as a wrestler is I never really had to cut weight. Actually, I cut weight once in eighth grade. I had to, I was a big kid, as you said, and I had to make 184 in eighth grade. And uh, it was just miserable. South Carolina, summer heat right there on Valley View. Uh, you know where that is. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, I was running around with this uh, trash bag on. I thought, this is the most useless thing. What am I doing? right now cutting this weight and uh, I went and wrestled in this tournament after I made the weight and and thought okay well that was a good job but you know I am never going to cut weight again I'm either going to be good enough at my natural body weight to to win or I just won't wrestle so I took that attitude from there on out after uh, eighth grade and carried it into high school and I'd always be you know five or ten pounds underweight uh freshman sophomore and maybe junior year for um the 215 weight class and then I put on probably 20 to 25 pounds between uh junior and senior year bulking up for football probably heavy weight my senior year but um I just I just work out and train like you know this is this is my weight class and you know nobody can beat me and that perhaps one of the unique attitudes that I've tried to share is I work with kids now at the high school level or otherwise is there's a static level of preparation that will come with anybody that's competing. And this probably applies to all sports, but I saw it in wrestling where you've got parents on the one hand that generally love the kids, want them to do well, and there'll be a static level of preparation and support there. And then you have coaches on the other hand that will train and work and practice the kids and, and try to put them in scenarios where they can get better and improve. But that's the static level everybody's doing that. So you have to figure out how are you going to distinguish yourself above that, that uh, static baseline to actually be distinguished and be better and improve. And I just, you know, tried to figure out ways to do that. I don't know how really I came to that realization, but uh, I did and, and tried to apply it. And a lot of it came through hard work, uh, whether it was lifting or additional drills or additional sprints or, you know, you name it. Um, I would, I would do it till I felt like no one else was crazy to crazy enough to do it that much. So that whenever I walked onto the mat, there was no doubt in my mind that the other guy had no right to win the match because he hasn't worked as hard. 
and you know that mental edge just about everything wrestling is kind of interesting whenever you get in shape and your wind's not an issue so that you're not distracted by gasping and out there like how am i going to get my next breath whenever you get in really good shape it it actually becomes like a high level chess match that's made of moves and counters for uh you know six or seven minutes and that's what you're doing straight just moves and counters moves and counters moves and counters and counters and counters and then the counter to the counter and as long as your condition's good, you can keep playing that game for however long. And that's where wrestling really became uh, fun and, and so interesting to me is all these these moves and positions and then counter moves. And you see how that foundation has paved the way for a lot of athletes who actually participate in wrestling, whether if it's football players, they tend to be a little bit better football player. If they wrestle, they have a better base and balance and, and understanding of body positioning. Um, MMA is huge now, and the wrestlers tend to do pretty well because they understand hip control really well, but also have worked really hard. You know, as one last yeah. flow, as you say, or stream of consciousness on this, I've found that Dan Gable was right. Once you've wrestled, uh, just about everything else in life is easy. You know, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but you know, whenever you have wrestled uh, a whole lot and spent the majority of your life in front of large groups of people while you're in spandex and you're rolling around else and they're doing the same to you. <laughs> There's not much else that can bother you. Not too much can get you flustered or stressed out because you've been through like, some, of the, some of the hardest work you'll ever do. Um, one other party thought, uh, one of my college coaches, his name was CD mock, a uh, great guy. He was, um, UNC's first national champion in wrestling in 1982, the, the year I was born, incidentally. Um, he would always say that wrestlers use every other sport to warm up. And that's not mm. like any other sport, but uh, I found it to be true. We would be running or swimming or doing like gymnastics kind of stuff uh, in all of our warm ups to get ready to wrestle. And then we'd go to battle. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm fascinated by it. Um did not wrestle at all um but you know I, oh, come on you know you know gay grabbed you from time to time or something <laughs> <laughs> nobody was keeping score formally but yeah there were some brother brotherly matches yeah i i do i'm fascinated though with with um you talking about the mindset of of being on your own training and going to the point where you knew like no one else in their right mind would get this far or do one more set and so i'm going to do it and i know that i'm going to win there's also other people training who got to that point a little before you did or they they were you know two steps before that and felt like no one else is going to go further and they were really confident walked into the match just as confident as you but you got them you know what i mean and so it's like it, that's it's just a fascinating realm because it all comes down to like that mental toughness uh that they're both in shape both fit both strong both have good technique but it's like it's such a mind game it yeah, seems but, like it. Um, there's balance as well you know like you you have to train crazy like that but then you also have to recover so if you overtrain, uh you're the strenuous nature of your training won't do you any good if the muscles never rebuild. So you got to sure. take them down and let them repair and make sure you hydrate. You got to get the right nutrition. So there's balance there. But uh, point, I guess it's a matter of misjudging the mark. 
um, <laughs> you, you went far, but you didn't just didn't go quite far enough. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you had several people where you were their only loss. You know, they were really, really, really good, but they would lose to someone who's a state champ or national champ. And it's like, that's, um, <laughs> they're just going up against a tough guy. Uh, it's, yeah, um, may, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. All I know is I remember, I can't remember many of the wins at all, but I remember my losses uh, in high school for sure. I'm sure. Yeah, those are the ones you learn the most from, the losses. Yeah. I just got a hand. I can, I can almost relive them in my mind. I don't have to look at the tape even still. <laughs> they stick with you. On the topic of training and recovery, I think that in most athletic fields, there's some traditional, whether it's movements or um, warm-ups or whatever it is that might be um, with, you know, looking back in hindsight, grinded on the body or weren't necessarily good for your longevity. Are there any moves or, or um, exercises that you did back then that now you'd say, yeah, I probably wouldn't recommend kids to do that or um, any, anything on that topic that comes to mind? Yes. Um, this doesn't have anything to do with wrestling, but you know, I, I'll, if you notice me to go like this during the, you know, my moving your neck, um, not being careful in football is an issue for kids, uh, coming up, but obviously even at college and pro level, because it manifests in, in brain conditions and issues much later in life and sometimes even results in early onset. But I can still think of times where I had stingers out there uh, at Luke Golf Elgin High School. And the attitude at the time was, oh, you know, just suck it up. You're fine. And you like, you can't feel your left arm. And you can't feel your right arm. And you just laid a nasty hit on somebody because that's what you were trained to do. But in reality, you're, you're jeopardize, jeopardizing your, your neck structure in some way by, by doing that. Um, you know, to the extent my kids participate in football uh, in the future, I'll make sure that I coach them through that issue and teach them how to be safe and not put themselves at risk. Uh, but that's something I, I wish I had avoided, uh, or at least been, you know, that the state of the art was better at that time. Right. You know, how to do it safely. Good point. I still remember being uh, in middle school when you were the running back i think and it was like every time they just handed off to you right up the middle it was always clogged up but somehow you'd get like five or six yards every time <laughs> it's, it's crazy i wish i wish i had been a running back much earlier in my career they just because i was big they always had me as a lineman which i guess makes sense in the southeast and you got a big guy just he also happens to be really fast but you're big that means you're a lineman they uh, they made the connection. I think end of my junior year or something like that. Maybe we should let him run the ball a little bit. Uh, very last part of my junior year, I started running the ball, and then senior year, I had like almost a thousand yards, man, or almost over nine hundred. I forget what it was exactly as a blocking back. Um, wow. But yeah, I always wonder, you know, what if I'd started running the ball in eighth grade and kind of figured out, you know, the timing of cuts and you know uh, how to run better. Um, so yeah, yeah. So. Uh, let's so you you go to you wrestle at UNC you get uh you also stick around and get uh, a juris doctor law degree right at, at UNC and then start practicing law uh tell me a little about like what's law school like and and uh and what's it like working at a, a big firm uh law school is interesting in that it it really teaches you how to think 
Well, at least that's the main value that I drew from it is it, it's trying to teach you how to think and analyze problems. It doesn't teach you necessarily like the, the practice of law and how you would do it day to day because each practice of law in each area is different from civil litigation to tax law to criminal law to um, labor licensing regulation to government affairs. I mean, they're, they're all just so different. They would each have different filing requirements and the different rules between the state and federal courts. Um, but it teaches you how to think and analyze based on the facts and the law. So you get the facts of whatever your case or situation is, and then you uh, are trained on how to do research to identify the correct law that applies, and then you apply the, uh, the law to your facts. And then you make arguments and try to be persuasive based on that analysis. It went by in a flash. Uh, I mean, there were a couple of classes that maybe went a little slower than others, but it went by so quickly. Kristen um, also graduated from Chapel Hill undergrad and then worked for a research institute on campus while I was going through law school. So she essentially put me through law school. We stayed busy uh, during that time. Hadn't had any children yet. Actually had our first child at the very end of my third year in law school, um, right before we started working. And uh, it was just, just a blur, a lot of fun. Chapel Hill is a great place to go to school too. And UNC actually won a few national championships while we were there. So it was a great time for us to be in college. And then the other part of your question about working at a large firm, I think is, is really smart for, um, for people coming out of law school. I mean, it's something that you would want to do if you can get the job because they have programs that are designed to train you and get you up to speed and, and help you become efficient and hopefully useful at the practice of law. Um, so I was really thankful. I worked for an outstanding firm called Nelson Mullins, just wonderful people there. I still keep in touch with so many of them now, uh, even last weekend, um, hopped on a, uh, on a zoom meeting with uh, a friend and partner that was my, one of my 1st bosses ever out of law school and did a little Bible study with him. Uh, he's down in Charleston, um, guy named Moose, just a great man. And so those friendships last as they would. But the legal training and, and skill set, uh, I hope, lasts as well. That's great. And from there, you joined your dad, who's also an attorney uh, working in the, the family business, right? Yeah. So um, after we had baby number two, we ultimately decided to move back closer to home just to be near family. And felt like that would be just a good move for the family to have the kids. You know, both of Kristen's parents have passed away. Um, sadly, again, I mentioned Gerald, but Faye, her mom, uh, also a sweetheart, just a wonderful lady. She passed away from cancer as well. And we felt like it was important for our kids to have a connection with um, their remaining grandparents and other local family. We prayed about it and, and felt directed to be closer to family. So we made that move and came back and practiced with my dad, which I still am now. You know, he, um, our, our practice areas are so different that some days we hardly see each other, even though we're in the same office building. Um, but it's been a great move for us. It's led to increased flexibility and the opportunity to run and, and have time to serve in local government and, uh, and do work that I really enjoy. Yeah. And what type of law do you practice and, and what about your dad? 
So I represent businesses and kind of whatever it is they need. That's a portion of my practice. And then uh, the majority of my practice is injury work. I just help folks who have been injured in some way, somehow. I always, uh, always tell my friends and clients, I say, if you need me, you've had a really bad day. It could be a worker's comp injury, something with a nursing home, um, medical malpractice, or a really bad truck or car or motorcycle accident. Those are kind of folks and families that I help. And then on the business side, it could be uh, just general transactions. It could be negotiating with a supplier and employee dispute, and you need you know some advice on that or something contractual um, or just general business advice. Cool. I'll. I, maybe it's because of the movies or or whatever you see in the headlines. I just kind of as, associate uh, malpractice and and injury, personal injury attorneys with like being sharks, you know. But so I'm knowing <laughs> that you're in that field gives me confidence to know there's there's good guys out there. So I have a handful of friends who are attorneys and uh, all really good people, which is like all right, that reassures me because. You wouldn't think, you know, just, you just kind of associate that there's a lot out there that you wouldn't necessarily. You can, I'm sure you, in any industry, you're going to find like the good and the bad. Um, oh, and then I forgot to, I meant to mention also that you asked about Joe, my dad. He does uh, commercial and residential real estate transactions. So completely different practice area than wills and trusts and probate. So there's kind of a balance. Okay. We try to serve the community as well as we can. Cool. Now, I know you're not a um, criminal, you know, you know, uh, focus on criminal uh, justice or that type of law, but I do want to get your thoughts on uh, on this. So over the last year, I've noticed there's a lot of like sort of flash judgment and, and mob mentality. Whenever something um, happens in the news, everyone's sure of what should happen. Can you just share your thoughts as uh, someone who's been taught how to think in law school? Like, Thoughts on due process and and why do we have the tradition of providing legal representation for a defendant, even when it seems like pretty certain that they're the, the guilty party? Yeah, well, I, um, I found generally a rush to judgment is not wise. You need to get all the facts <clears throat> before you make any decision or make any judgment. Uh, on anything, really, you got to get all the information that you can to make an informed decision. And then in our constitutional system, while I don't practice criminal law, I've always believed strongly that the system's right. It is designed to let a guilty person go free so that it can be designed to also keep an innocent man out of jail. And thus you're innocent until you're proven guilty. So the state carries the burden of proving their case. They have to prove their case. Um, while you, you don't even put up a defense if they feel like the, the government has not carried their burden of proof in proving that a crime was committed with all the required mental elements and, and all of that. So um, I, I feel pretty strongly about that, that you know, government uh, I've, I've praised it at the local level, at least from what I've seen, it, it can be efficient and, and hopefully helpful. Um, and I mean, it has its faults, but government can also be a one way ratchet to take away freedoms in, in, in some ways, you know, like there's a spectrum of government, uh, totalitarian, totalitarian control, and then absolute freedom from the individual. 
And every time you make a new law or new ordinance or some of the regulations put in place, you're creeping uh, away from freedom of the individual. Right. And I know that's a broad generalization, but it's a concern that I have. And I, I hope people would think about that from time to time that, you know, each new law or ordinance or regulation, somebody's freedom got gobbled up somewhere. Now, maybe it's justified if there's a necessary protection that needs to occur uh, for public safety or otherwise, but it really needs to be scrutinized. And that same principle, I think, applies, Sean, with uh, criminal justice. And you want to make sure that that our freedoms aren't encroached on in any unreasonable or unfair way, and that the guarantees we have in the Constitution are held um, are held primary and aren't infringed on. Yeah, I totally agree. Because if it's, um, I think I was, this was back. Uh... When Ron Paul was running for president, I was kind of investigating and remember him saying something about when the government gains new power or new authority that we give to them, they never give it back. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And when you follow current events, whatever crisis is going on is used to justify a new program that takes away a little bit of freedom. And it makes sense at the time in the moment uh, sometimes, but uh that never comes back. Like you said, it's a one-way ratchet. So something to be thinking about. Yeah, it's a one-way ratchet. There's a guy named uh, Thomas Sowell who shared an experience. He, he's, a, in my view, a very brilliant economist. Uh, he used to work for, as like a housing and urban development um, arm of the government. And this was maybe before or while he was going through some graduate studies at Stanford and other, you know, well-known universities. And I think he was of the view that, you know, the government uh, was just this thing and in some ways disconnected from people and their individual motivations. But the reality was whenever he interned or worked at this particular arm of the government, he, he discovered and learned that, no, the government was just made up of people who also have their own issues and motivations. And, you know, they're, they're trying to justify budgets and, they're the ones making the reports that have the data points and the data is subject to interpretation and they have self-interest, you know, maybe it's in the best in the country's best overall interest to, to cut out a certain department or a certain service or a certain program uh, it might hurt, but maybe it's in our best interest overall, but it's very tough to make that decision when, uh, when people don't say, you know what, it's time for me to fall on the sword. And we just need to get rid of this department, which means I'll lose my job. You know, you're not going to get the objective advice, you're going to get subjective advice. And, and that was uh, one of the observations that he made that I always thought was useful. Sure. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy for sure. Um, all right. You are a busy man, but when you do have time, what are your hobbies? Um, well, I've enjoyed farming over the last two years. I'd say that's the hobby that six dextra cows, um, five goats, the donkey, I mentioned about 20 chickens. We just, uh, just butchered nine roosters uh, a few weeks ago and then, um, various fruits and vegetables and, uh, the beehives I mentioned. So I, I really enjoy getting involved with that, but I also love music. I love exercise, um, between music, playing guitar and singing. Uh, those would be some of my hobbies and then exercise and just hanging out with my family. What's your go-to exercise? 
really it'd be like any, at this point, you know, I, I recently turned 39, I would say any uh, multi-joint movement exercise. So it could be hang cleans, something with kettlebells, um, just multi-joint functional movements that result in increased flexibility and joint strength. Um, and, but also, you know, make you work hard enough where you're getting a little bit of cardio in too. So pretty, pretty tight intervals in between rest periods. That's good. I would say, I, I feel like hang cleans are probably my favorite, uh, movement because I don't know. I, I just like that one also. Um, yeah, it doesn't when at this age, just doing curls in front of the mirror doesn't feel as fulfilling. How are you now? <laughs> I'm uh, almost 35. Yeah, okay. You're creeping up. Yeah. Yeah. Um the I noticed the uh the failure rate on my body parts is uh increasing as I get older. So <laughs> <laughs> one of my friends told me the other day, he said, you know, I um oh gosh, what did he say? He said I no longer have uh injuries that are from i just have small permanent impairments it's not like an injury you bounce back from anymore that ankle will always hurt you yeah <laughs> totally totally yeah you run more than a mile the ankle's flaring up um all right what are the, the top two or three books that have most influenced your life do you have a couple that you regularly recommend or share with other people yeah, well, if I can, I'll do uh, religious and non-religious. Um, so I would say the Bible and the Book of Mormon have influenced me morally and spiritually in in huge ways that that you know. Hopefully, I just try to do what they say, and uh, I'm not saying that I do what they say, but I try to do what they say, and I try to learn more about them and and let them be the principles they are taught in there about Jesus Christ and what his apostles and the prophets taught, try to let them guide me about kindness and charity, uh, repentance, forgiveness, and, you know, trials and how to get through them. Those are paramount for me. I'd say on the non-religious side, I find exceptions to the rule pretty interesting. So a book like Outliers and then the, uh, the progeny that's followed that by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, pretty interesting, where things that you wouldn't really expect are true, based whether it's how well you perform in athletics or how well you do in school or how effective the company is. There are little, little, uh, or large, sometimes small and large nuggets of data that can guide your decisions if you really look for them. And then another one that um, that I've always found interesting. Since, like you, I'm an entrepreneur, I mean, I'm, I'm an attorney, but I also invest in real estate and have uh, ownership interest in various other businesses that are involved from the marine industry to restaurants to uh, desserts and different things um, would be The Innovator's Dilemma. It's an interesting book and series of books uh, by the late Clayton Christensen, who was a, a just outstanding man. Um, but that book is about how being successful can be one of your biggest hurdles or problems because you tend not to innovate anymore. And maybe the gist of it is to innovate right past you because you're going to miss value propositions because you become complacent in your success. 
that's probably the, the nub of it. But there's the innovator's um, dilemma, the innovator solution, and then uh, there's a series that branches off into uh, the, the medical field and um, kind of industry as well. Cool. Yeah, I think one of my uh, undergraduate professors just like partnered with Clayton Christensen and did like innovators DNA and some other stuff. But yeah, yeah. So um, I, 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 sort of my mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints up in Boston for two years, and I was in the Belmont congregation for gosh, I don't know, like eight or nine months. Uh, it was a good while, and uh, Clayton and his family, Christine and their, um, I think they had two kids at home at that time. We're in that ward, so we've got to regularly go over for dinner. You know, here he's one of the. <laughs> what did I know from Little Luke off South Carolina about Harvard? Harvard business professors, but uh, he and Kim Clark uh, and a guy named Roger Porter, who was at the School of Government, were all at Harvard, and we got to go over and have dinner with them multiple times per month, and just talk to him about all kinds of stuff. Um, so that's that's how I had a relationship with their family, and. Um, and, you know, that always stuck with me. And then I, I started learning more about uh, his writings and, and enjoyed following those. Yeah, that's cool, man. And um, Malcolm Gladwell, there's, I've never uh, been disappointed by a Malcolm Gladwell book. Always so interesting. Yeah, it's always got a little interesting twist on it. Yeah. Um, in the last year, what's the best thing you've bought that was under a hundred bucks? Ooh, that would have to be, I forget the brand, but it's, you know, one of those multi-tools. I can get out of my car. I think it's called the wingman or something like that. But, you know, it's got the pliers on it. It's got the knife. It's got, uh, you know, different screwdriver heads on it, um, all in stainless steel. I have used that thing more than, than I could tell you. Cool. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? I will have to quote one of my good friends. We just built this house that I know. We've been here for about a year. Uh, the guy that did our HVAC work on it, his name is Henry Powers. He's an outstanding member of the community locally. And he, on his own, has you know printed up these yard signs and all kinds of different uh, pamphlets that just says simply on it, it says, love first. I think so many of the solution or the problems in the world would be solved by having more charity and just loving people first. Uh, on some level, it sounds a little cliche, but it's actually what the same about loving others and treating them as we would want to be treated and essentially being fair and not rushing to judgment necessarily, but maybe learning a little bit more about them. So I'd probably put up there, I'd, I'd, Get Henry's, uh, I'd ask him if I could use his logo, put love first up there. That's really cool, man. I love how he just did that on his own and uh, totally agree on the messaging because so it's like you get two people who um, are passionately at odds with each other on a political issue about may, they may agree on what they want the long-term goal to be, but the way they'd get there is just so different. But it's like, ultimately, like, loving each other and everyone else is going to help a lot in everything you do. So just be kind. Um, whatever you, yeah. whatever you feel but, like, uh, love other people. There's, there's a, there's a flip side to that because some people have bad intentions and you got to be, you know, let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, uh, accountability and bar setting. 
you know, also don't let somebody pull the wool over your eyes. Um, you can say I love you, but I also will defend myself if I have to, <laughs> whether whether it be um, yeah. politically, emotionally, uh, or even physically. Um, there are some people out there who have bad intentions, but I think the best way to to approach it is try to love first. And you know, I don't do it right all the time. Sometimes I get emotional uh, and make the wrong call, um, or you know, when when you've been trained the majority of your life to solve problems through, uh, you know, uh, force and physical confrontation, you know, I will make you get on your back. You don't want to get on your back, but I'm going to make you get on your back right now. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, mentally you, you still go there and think, okay, let me readjust. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's with, a, with kindness and charity and you don't have to just, you know, you, you don't have to, um, to try to mentally beat somebody into submission or, or dominate. You know, be fair. Right. What is something that makes you really happy that not enough people are trying? I think spending time with their family and educating them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, worldwide, I, that brings me a lot of joy talking about what has been done for us by the savior and kind of watching it clip for my kids and helping them understand that, you know, it's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but there is a higher law and that that can lead to joy and happiness. And that's where you can find real joy and happiness, not the temporary stuff that the world has to offer. Um, yeah, I, I would wish that people, I'd hope that people would spend more time with their family and focus on God. What is something you've changed your mind on in the last five years? Well, like you, Sean, I'm never wrong. So <laughs> um, that's a, man, that's an interesting question. So I'll go back to, uh, the conversation we had about local government uh, and on some level being more effective, I guess, than state or federal government, I just feel like it's more immediate. Maybe it's because I'm serving it now, but I used to have a feeling that, you know, no government was useful at all, but I've realized that uh, the Republican or a conservative party or a conservative thought process towards government uh, assumes some government. So it's not no government at all, but it's limited government within what should be strictly confined controls placed on it by the Constitution, that the federal government only has those powers that uh, are not, well, they're specifically uh, outlined powers and that the people have all the other powers that aren't specifically uh, designated to the federal government. And that's where all the power lies is with the people. Um, so I've kind of changed my mind on that, switching from you know, not liking government much at all to understanding that, no, it's actually limited limited, and that in some way, um, God kind of directed and, and set up our country that was based on freedom, where particularly freedom of religion could occur and grow as opposed to other parts of the world. Yep. In the last five years, 
what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Probably the farming. I mean, that's really over the last two years, but just to give you an example, like last night we had a salad that Kristen made and 100% of it came from our garden. It's a winter garden. And you'd be surprised at how many greens will actually grow pretty well throughout the winter, really produce. Cool. Um, but Is that like through, from a greenhouse? Uh, we we just built a greenhouse that has a lot of fruits and different, no, but there, I mean, between different collards and types of greens that will grow in the colder months, you can wow. produce pretty well, actually, in the winter, certain portions of the winter. But um, no, so from the salad last night was just from the garden, not from the greenhouse. Wow. Though we do have a lot of fruits. We've got limes, lemons, um, different types of oranges that we can grow in the greenhouse, uh, which has been really cool to see and have them survive, you know, the sub-freezing temperatures. Uh, but I think that's probably made one of the biggest impacts in my life because it's healthy eating and uh, your gut biome, what is actually happening in your stomach is so essential. If it's processed sugars and processed foods, that encourages a different type of gut bacteria and uh, microbiome, which is not generally best for your body overall. But if it's if it's the right kind of food that you're eating, you're going to be a lot healthier overall and avoid more inflammation, have less joint problems, less likelihood for uh, diabetes and uh, heart issues. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, but that's been my experience so far and, and what we've studied about it and just observing my own lifestyle changes. Dude, I definitely want to come get a tour next time I'm in town. Yeah, come hang out, man. I've got a, I've got a little guest suite. We actually designed it that way. So family and friends can come and hang out up above the garage. You'd have your own place to stay. <laughs> God, that'd be awesome. Um, all right, well, let's, let's wrap up again on the topic of family. We talked quite a bit earlier, but, um, how would you describe your parenting style? Um, probably firm, but playful and loving, I hope. Um, I'm definitely much more the enforcer in our relationship. And, uh, and Kristen is just so awesome. So with COVID going on, she'd been thinking about homeschooling the kids already for like four years. And so this past year just said, made it easy to decide, yeah, let's just go ahead and homeschool. It's been awesome for them. It's been awesome for her. You realize that the kids can actually get the work done in like two and a half, three hours if they focus throughout the day. And it makes you wonder what they were doing at school for like six and a half or seven hours. Yeah. And how much of it would be dead time or waiting for uh, perhaps another student to catch up or, you know, just different things that don't relate specifically to your child. But it's been awesome because they spend that time that, you know, let's just call it three hours focusing and getting the work done uh, in a comparable curriculum. And then they have these excursions where they'll go on field trips, you know, you know multiple per week to it could be the zoo or it could be an aquarium or, you know, take, we went and visited my brother down in Florida and saw a neat aquarium down there. Um, yeah. So, you know, firm, uh, but loving and playful, I hope. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, how old are your kids? From 11 to, uh, less than one. Okay. Yeah. So mine, mine are from almost 11 to 
turning three this month. So about the same range. And it's kind of a weird thing to figure out. And you're like, how do I parent, but have enough love and mutual respects so that the child, uh, my child will feel comfortable coming to me with any problem that comes up, even if it's embarrassing or they're scared. And uh, that's the, that's the line that Kristen and I try to walk is like, you know, how do we teach them discipline and grit and responsibility, but realize that they're going to make mistakes and they're going to need to come to us when they make those mistakes so we can help them through it. And at least those are the discussions we have uh, as yeah. we, as we try to be good parents. Sure. That's a, uh, a real challenge, but um, worth, worth constant thought and consideration. Um, tell me a, like, in what ways would you say you're a better husband than three to five years ago? And in what ways have you become a better father in the last three to five years? I think by relaxing a little bit more, not stressing out over stuff as much. And, um, and then also I would say over the last yeah, three to five years, I've done better at creating lists and tasks for completion uh, that help me stay organized. I've just got so much stuff going on that, we, I mean, from from business to volunteer work in the community to county council, but especially uh, in the home and my responsibilities here, if I don't write it down, it, I'll forget about it or there, it, the high probability that I might forget about it and not get it done. So I try to be good at calendaring just to stay organized and then create um, just simple lists and tasks for completion. And that way, at the end of the day, you, you can see that you actually got something done. And then you can also remind yourself that you got the important stuff done. Um, and then that frees up more time for you because uh, you're not scrambling to catch up with things you forgot. That frees up more time for you to spend with your family and your kids and and develop those relationships that are so important in this particular age that you and I are dealing with right now, the, the sub 12 year old age, and that's where, you know, a very high percentage of the relationship that forms, it's meaningful. Uh, it forms during those years. Yeah. As you look towards Pretty soon, the you and I won't be cool anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'll have to try to figure out how we, how we stay relevant in our kids' lives. <laughs> When you look towards the future, what's one thing you feel optimistic about? You said optimistic? Yes. Oh, um, well, I'll go right to my faith. Uh, I have great faith and confidence in God and his plan that he's in control. And that if I trust and rely on the principles that that he has taught us through his son jesus christ i'm very optimistic and hopeful that things will work out in my life and the lives of others that uh, that follow those principles and i don't know what that means necessarily for the country or the world or what you know biblical prophet biblical prophecy would say at some point it's going to get worse before it gets better uh leading up to the second coming but on an individual level, on the micro level with my family, I have great confidence in knowing that, that God has a plan for us. And that plan ultimately leads to joy and happiness and peace. If we follow it. Good man. Uh, any shows or podcasts you want to recommend other people to check out? 
Let's see. I um, I listen to Rogan from time to time. Uh, it's just an interesting mix of you know uh, to the extent uh, he's an educated meathead like me. Uh, <laughs> he has some very interesting guests on there, from astrophysicists to people who believe in UFOs. Sometimes it's educated, sometimes educational, sometimes it's just uh, entertaining. And um, having having built this house recently. A show that I wasn't aware of, I think it's a British show called Grand Designs, was really neat. Uh, if you like architecture at all, that was a, a great show on design aspects of architecture all around the world, just beautiful homes, but also practical uh, design for efficiency and and just neat ways you can build stuff. For example, here, you know, in South Carolina, not a lot of people have uh, in-ground basements. You'll have a lot of in the Midwest, but we put one in here with the idea that we were going to use the basement air to circulate on a zone one with the main floor. And the house has two little wings off each side where the bedrooms are, but that's made such a difference in our energy. And, you know, some of the ideas we got from how we designed our HVAC system came from watching that show and architecture that was in there. Um, you know, the basement with, you know, 10 or 12 inch poured concrete walls and concrete floor is an ambient, uh, let's just call it 62 to 68 or so degrees year round, depending on if it's hot or cold outside. And essentially you're just swapping air. So if it's 101 degrees outside, that means that it would be, um, you know, 85 or 90 in your house. You're just taking that 68 degree air and swapping it. And For free. So you're not having to put a lot of energy into your HVAC load, but Grand Designs is a cool show. Awesome. And what is a good cause that you wish more people knew about or were supporting? There was a guy named Patrick Payne who recently received the Medal of Honor in uh, in South Carolina. And um, He's just an absolute stud. He, if you want to look up Patrick Payne, there'll be some videos online of him conducting a rescue mission in the Middle East where they saved, I think it was over 60 hostages, puts himself in line of fire and uh, just awesome. Um, anyway, he went to Lugolf Elgin and my dad, Joe, coached him. He coached one year in wrestling and Patrick Payne told me about this foundation called the Tip of the Spear Foundation. It was set up, I think, by special operators and whether it's someone who's passed away and the family needs support or if they've been seriously injured or grievously injured in the battlefield protecting our freedoms, that foundation is a charitable foundation that supports those families in need who typically represent servicemen and women who have put themselves at the highest risk for the freedoms that we enjoy. I wish people knew about it, would donate to it and uh, find a way to lift it up. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Uh, Patrick is a legitimate hero and um, that is such a good cause to take care of the families of those who have uh, lost their lives. So um, Ben, thank you for coming on, man. We've talked about a ton, got to learn a lot about you and and, uh, your family and some good parenting tips and got to learn a lot about government too. So Anyway, thank you for coming. It has been a blast to have you and um, really enjoyed the, the chat we had. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks, man. Anytime.
Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to make sure you catch new episodes as they come out. If you've already subscribed, please consider sharing an episode with a friend and or rating the podcast in Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. If you have a dad in mind who would make a killer guest, send me a note. If you have a question you'd like me to ask, please share it with me. If you have any other feedback, including but not limited to hate mail, send it on over. You can find me on LinkedIn under the name Sean Radvansky. I always enjoy hearing from listeners wherever or whoever you are. Thank you for joining me as I ask random questions to learn about various topics and hear how these dads live their lives. I enjoy doing these episodes and knowing that you are listening provides extra motivation. So thank you. I hope you make today a good day. See you next time.